This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a, a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 419 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Emma Benoit. Now, Emma was living as a regular high school student. She was a cheerleader and was succumbing to some of the pressures that a lot of our children feel themselves under when it comes to grades, when it comes to performance in the academic and athletic space. And on June 7th, 2017, she found herself with a gun in her hand and attempted to take her own life. Now, miraculously, Emma survived and was left with a diminished movement after injuring her spinal cord, 
but has had an incredible journey of growth, ultimately leading her to make a film with Greg called My Ascension, documenting her journey and bringing suicide awareness to our children and our schools. So this was an incredible conversation. There were so many parallels between a lot of the conversations I've had with the tactical people, the medical people that come on this show, and our children. The pressures that we see, the inability to reach out the facade that everyone else is doing well and we're the ones that are struggling, the ones that are weak. These lines intersect over and over again. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every man, woman, and child that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Emma Benoit. Enjoy. Emma, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast this evening. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am located in the beautiful, dreamy South Louisiana. Beautiful. Well, I love to start at the very beginning. I know you are actually, you know, born and bred in that area. A lot of my guests are, you know, transplanted somewhere else. So tell me about your family dynamics. So where you were born, what your mom and dad do, and how many siblings? Okay, so a little bit about my background. So I was, like you said, born and bred in in the South. This is all I know. And I'm definitely a Southern girl at heart. So my mom and dad growing up, like, did a lot of different things. Um, My dad has, for the longest time, been in construction. So just going from plant to plant, working job to job um, kind of thing, which which is good. Um, for our family, um, being in the South, there's a lot of that work around here. So that's all always nice. And then my mom worked also, um, in the, in the construction world, but more in the admin side of things. So she's also reaping that benefit of being in the South, um, of work, being able to work at a plant and stuff. So They've um, provided a really good life for me and my brothers, just him and I, he's my older brother. And growing up, we were like best friends. Like, it's so weird to even like, ver- like verbalize out of my own mouth that like, we never growing up, like had a legit fight. Like, I can't remember ever like being like, actually like, at, like aggressively angry at my brother for anything or any reason in particular. So um, we had a really close relationship growing up. We're only 27 months apart. So, but yeah, it was just the four of us and it was like the picture perfect childhood. And I grew up playing sports. I was a cheerleader. Well, you consider cheerleading a sport, which a lot of people don't, but. Well, I mean, I don't know <laughs> if they, if they consider curling and darts a sport, cheerleading is definitely a sport. <laughs> right. Thank you. Um, so- so we so going back in so yeah there there are a lot of people that come on the show that have had elements of their childhood where they've struggled um and you know in in the documentary that we'll talk about a little bit later 
it seems like that wasn't the case with you, as you just said. So were there anything, any areas at all, any elements when you look back, you know, prior to the high school age where even if it's just a feeling of, 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 uh, you know, not being good enough or, um, you know, anything at all that you look back now and, and would consider that a factor in what happened later? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, like you said, we're all kind of like our, our childhoods definitely, you know, tell a lot about us when we grow up. Um, they definitely are really telling. So, you know, there was no external cause, like triggers or causes that would indicate that my childhood was like bad or anything like that. But there was always this one aspect of my life that was just like lingering. And that was the fact that I was always a perfectionist. Like if it wasn't perfect, then I don't want it. Like, and that was everything with myself, you know? So that definitely is something I struggle with from as early as, as early as I can remember. And, you know, with that, with that mentality of, you know, striving for nothing but perfection, you know, from when you're as young as you can remember, you know, that becomes really toxic and it, and it, it, it only leads to you forming these like bad habits, these bad, you know, mental kind of like habits, I guess you could call them. I mean, like, so yeah, I think that that, I mean, like I've never, like I've, you know, I didn't really have, I had a good childhood, you know, I grew up where, you know, we weren't, we had just could play on the street when we got off the school bus and just were told to come home when the street lights came on. And, and, you know, we, I was, if it wasn't cheerleading competition weekend, then it was a baseball tournament weekend for my brother. And it was just like always fun. We were always busy doing some, you know, there was, like I said, my brother and I never really fought. So there was nothing really, no tension there, you know? And I mean, you know, my dad and I would butt heads, you know, growing up and that, that really got to me, but, but overall, you know, my childhood was seemingly okay. You know, I didn't really ever have to deal with any real intense traumas. I didn't really have to deal with any like loss or anything like that. Um, so aside from me being, you know, from as early as I remember being so in my head about everything always, um, other than that, you know, there, there's really not much that I really could look back and say that were obvious struggles. Now, where do you think that came from? Because, I mean, that's something that, that I've even talked about a lot with, with guests that were, you know, in the sports world before, or maybe coaches, where um, in sports specifically, you know, th- there is a lot of pressure to perform. And, and what used to be a sport that it was a game that a, that a child liked playing kind of became this elitist performance to be the best. So what, what were some of the pressures when you look back that you, or maybe some of the factors that, that contributed to that pressure that you were feeling as a child? Yeah. Um, I don't want to say that it was anything that anyone did or any, any way that anyone made me feel that would like lead me to behave that way or lead me to have my thoughts turn to that way. Um, everything like that made me 
think that like behave that way and have those types of thoughts had to do with myself. So like, I'll never felt, I guess, I guess like just not feeling worthy of anything, you know, like never wanting to give myself credit for anything. Um, large and small, you know, like credit anywhere. Um, so just always trying to just be in constant competition with myself, be in constant competition with myself. When I look at myself, and obviously I'm a lot older than you, <laughs> um, there's there's definitely when I look back, and, and even to this day, there's this thing they call the imposter syndrome. So even though when I look back and I've done all these awesome things in my life, there's still a part of me that just says, yeah, but... You know, yeah, yeah, you did that, but you know, is, is it really as good as when other people did it? So I can, yeah. I can relate to that, you know, yeah. a lot. But then you, when you, when you bring in the competitive, um, element in sports, whatever someone's chosen sport is, and then you take now academics where the American, I'm, I'm English originally, but the American generation of my age group, you know, 4.0 is you smashed it. That's it. You, you know, it was perfection. Now you've got GPAs that are in the the fives, which is crazy. So it seems like, and then you add in like the social media world too. There's there's a lot of the bar being pushed up, 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 up. And and I feel like a lot of us, whether we're you know older adults or whether we're school age, in a way are chasing this elusive goal that is basically unachievable. You know, because we're seeing the best cheerleader. Okay, and the best cheerleader probably can't play piano to save their life. But then you see a pianist, and it's the best pianist, you know, and the and the best, you know, there's the 13 year old that went to Harvard, you know. So we're exposed to so much elitism that, again, like you said, it's not blaming. But when you're looking for causes, I feel like we're surrounded by a facade of excellence that is almost unachievable to to pretty much 99.9 percent of the population. Yeah, you definitely have a point there, and that the pressure, the external pressures absolutely can have the power to overtake, you know, the, the internal demons, you know, like for sure. So I, I like when I, my, my elementary school years and my middle school years, there was like little to no pressure. Obviously only the pressure that I felt was really the pressure that I put on myself, which was enough to live with in and of itself you know, being a kid, having all the pressure on you, from you, you know, and you can't, you can't be rid of that. Um, And then getting into high school was whenever I really started to feel the pressures of life and everything else that came along with it. Like you mentioned academics, that was a huge thing for me. Um, You know, I was never the smartest. I mentioned earlier in our conversation that I hate numbers. Like I'm, numbers scare me. Like they make me shriek and I just don't like them at all. And, you know, so math was never my thing and I didn't really like science. I never really liked to read. So like, I was never like good at school. It was always something that I had to work at. And, um, so the pressure I put on myself there was immense. And then, you know, you said sports, that was also a factor, you know, cheerleading was a big deal in my life. It was the only thing that I really got involved in act like act like outside of school um then I did that when I since I was a child and I did it all the way through high school um and that was very competitive um you know extremely competitive uh, and 
than, you know, friends and, you know, this having to hold up this image, you know, that you have it all together and that you have the nicest things, you know, and that your parents can buy you all these nice things. And, you know, so there's, there was definitely, I would say high school for sure is whenever the real external pressures started to really play a, a factor. Now, when you got to to the high school age, because I'm curious, my my son is about to go to high school this summer, and he he struggled with some some you know pretty significant depression, not um, suicide ideation, but definitely some some pretty deep lows. Through some errors by his school, he actually was put into a, a mental health facility for three days um, because he had audacity to be crying at his desk. <laughs> That's a whole a whole other story, but um. But like you said, it seems like that jump from middle school to high school is a big one. So when you got yeah. to that next grade, the the ninth grade, um, did did you, amongst conversations, find that other girls or boys were struggling too, were going through any sort of lows, or was it as it is with my profession in the fire service? You feel like everyone else is just fine, and they're all coping great, and you're the only one that's weak. Yeah, that's exactly. That's that's so true. Like, it's exactly similar. Like, it is. It's like no one, like no one has any problems. Like, no one, like everyone's problems that they actually come, like talk about are the most first world problems. You know, like they're just like not real problems at all. Um, like, no one. It's for me and my experience, you know, my experience in high school, just everyone was perfect. Everyone had it all together. Everyone was moving right along in the perfect, you know, order that they're supposed to be living and doing their lives. Um, just, they, they had it all together. They had everything sorted out. We don't talk about what is actually hurting us. We don't talk about that because, that's like, I don't know, not cool. Yeah. Or human. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, break the facade. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what's crazy. When I was watching the film, you know, I saw the exact same factors that plague, you know, the, the, the alpha males and females of the world, the police, the fire, the military, but it's the same human issue. And that facade that everyone else is doing okay. And clearly you must be, like I said, weak. You know, whatever whatever negative label you want to put on you, right. that just compounds the issue because not only do you feel like you're the one that's not strong enough, you also feel like you're alone and therefore completely isolated in your feelings. Right. And you don't think that anyone else is going through what you're going through. And you think that, or for me, at least, I think I thought that I was crazy. I literally thought that I was crazy because here I am, you know having this warfare in my head every single day, you know, having these emotions and these feelings about, you know, from the pressures and all the external factors in my life. And then on the flip side of my brain, I was just telling myself, you know, suck it up, you know, like you don't even have big problems. These are, you know, you know, I was comparing my, 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 my problems and my feelings to, situations that didn't even matter. You know, I was comparing, 
and therefore invalidating, you know, my feelings and what I was actually going through um, because I didn't feel worthy of like having those feelings enough that like I didn't feel worthy enough to, yeah, I guess like I just didn't feel worthy enough to have those feelings and those problems because on the outside to everyone, like my life, like I was just like everybody else. I was no different. Like I, I didn't like, no, like from the outside, no one knew that I had these problems. No one knew that I had these demons, you know, no one knew the things that I struggled with because I'd never showed anyone. I never let anyone in because well, number one, I was ashamed. And number two, because I never felt worthy of even having those feelings in the first place. So when you, when you add all that together, it makes the perfect masterpiece, like, like of just perfect disaster. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned about guilt as well. I think that's a big thing that I've seen over and over again is, you know, the comparison of trauma. And and I've had people that, you know, the, the, I would say the most extreme was a boy soldier from Sierra Leone whose parents were murdered and he was forced to become an addict and forced to kill in this, you know, army of of African guerrillas. And, you know, he was actually rescued by the Red Cross and, and now he's an ambassador for UNICEF. So he overcame that trauma. On the sliding scale, lateral, not vertical, I've had people on here who were a middle child. Their parents had their first child, um, you know, who they adored. And then it was a, a boy and they wanted another, they wanted a girl. So the second child was my friend. He was another boy. So when they had the girl, the third pregnancy, they adored her. And he, in that particular family unit, family dynamic, he felt like he wasn't loved, you know, now two very different traumas, but two mm-hmm. equally as impactful to the people it happened to. So mm-hmm. I think that's the problem that he struggled with. He was like, well, I wasn't, you know, molested as a child. I wasn't, you know, in a terrible car accident. I didn't see right. my, you know, but. I wasn't, so- I wasn't in and out of this foster care system. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't constantly in and out of juvie. Like, I, you know, like that's absolutely the same wave that I'm, that I was on, you know, just like, con- like, I was like, the, the thing that I would always hear in my head is like, what are you feeling sorry for yourself for? Like, that's always what I would just hear in my say, like, I guess say to myself, which I hate to even admit that that my brain was even capable of talking to me like that. Oh, trust me. I talk to myself all the time, sometimes openly. <laughs> people yeah. people saw me walking my dog. They think my dog spoke English because <laughs> they're yapping <laughs> away. <laughs> Um, but no, but that's just it. So discounting that trauma, the comparison, like you said, and then there's that guilt. Well, why, you know, why, why yeah. am I, Emma, feeling like this when I've got a nice home and I'm in cheerleading practice and, mm-hmm. you know, my family are healthy? I've got no reason to feel like this. The reality is you feel like this. And that's, you know, that's what's so sad is, you know, whether it's a, a high school girl or a 50 year old retired Navy SEAL, it's the same issue. It's, feeling like you can't reach out because everyone's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then feeling like whenever you do reach out, where would you even go? Like who would even understand what you're going? Like who would even want to be burdened with that? 
you know, that, that was a big thing for me. It was like, I never really let it cross my mind to like tell someone how I was like actually feeling like I never, it never really was a thought that crossed my mind. Like, Hey, maybe, maybe if I just like talk to my mom about, you know, the way I actually feel about these certain things, or, you know, if I just actually open up and like when someone asked me like how I'm doing or how my day was, if I just like tell them like how it actually was for me, you know, like that never really crossed my mind. Like those thoughts never really existed in my brain. So because I don't know, like, I guess when you're just so it like deep in it, like deep in your own head and just deep in your own darkness, like you just, you don't, don't, you don't really allow it to cross your mind of what it would even look like to help yourself. Now, with the journey, and obviously we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but with you being this side of the journey now, if you could go mm-hmm. back and, you know, create, not just tell you, but create an entire environment, what would that look like for younger Emma to have been able to reach out? What, you know, what, what would your friends have been doing? How would they have been, uh, what would the conversations around you have been that would have enabled you to feel like you could reach out? Yeah. I think if I could, go back and, you know, like you said, re kind of reinvent my whole like environment and whole life in that time, I would just be more honest, like, you know, like with everything, just like more honest because I, I just, I was lying all the time, you know, to cover certain lies about certain things and that's not good. And then, so if you're, you know, lying all the time and then you're lying to yourself about your feelings you know just be more honest like because people were reaching in for me like I was never reaching out actively I was never letting anyone see that I was you know actually suffering or struggling with anything Um, I made sure that no one saw that you know that was definitely a priority for me was to make sure that no one knew like that you know something affected me or that things that were affecting me. Um, So, but people were reaching in, like people would ask me, and when I say people, I mean my support system, my parents, my brother, my closest friends at the time, um, you know, there were people out there that were standing around wanting me to open up and allow them in but I never did. So if I could go back and change all that, like change, switch that to the opposite way, make that, it'd make my life a whole lot easier, make things smooth a lot better. Yeah. Well, that's such an important, you know, observation because I think that that's, there's a double-edged sword that that's the solution to this problem. Obviously it's whoever's hurting, feeling empowered to reach out and then it's the everyone else around who happens to be not hurting at that point who's doing well looking and being present and like you said reaching out um but i think one of the most misunderstood things and i feel this is this i think this is this honestly the the rule with most human beings and sadly the way if you look at social media if you look at the news you think that all humans were we're shitty right now, you know, they're, they're at war over COVID, over race, over, you know, whatever. And I think that's complete yeah. crap. I think that most yeah. people are looking for a way to help each other. So yeah. getting the person who's hurting to understand 
that the people around them want to help. They're not going to be burdened by it. They actually want to help, but you have to initiate that. Once you do, you're going to be probably, you know, smothered by people bending over backwards to help you. Yeah. And I think that we all have a little, a little, uh, I call it a, like a bug, like a little parasite bug in our brains that we're just innately, we have. And that little bug is the, the negative bug. And it just, we're always going to have that, but it's a matter of over, like, overcoming it and tricking yourself into avoiding that, you know, that when those thoughts come up, because like, I still have my days where I'm like, the world sucks, everyone sucks, you know, but ultimately I think people are good. And I think that people want to be good. And I think that we are, we, I think part of the reason we are here is for each other to be there for one another. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So, um, I have one other question before we get into, you know, your, your journey, um, downwards basically, um, that it just, it just occurred to me. I don't know if this is ever an issue with you, but with the, the military, with law enforcement, with the combat sports with football, TBIs, you know, traumatic brain injuries can also contribute to, you know, some mental health issues. Did you ever have any falls or anything while you were cheerleading? Um, yeah, I took some falls. Um, obviously, definitely for sure. Um, because I was a flyer, I was up in the air. Um, I was more prone to falls, which I took quite a few. Um, but I, I didn't never really sustained any like traumatic head in, in injuries. I never really, I never even really broke a bone. I mean, I've remained pretty much injury free throughout my, my entire like cheerleading career, if you will. Um, which is a blessing, you know, but, um, yeah, so I don't think that any falls that I took, yeah, no, it's just an important thing for us to to take into account, especially yeah. if it's you know, the football for player sure. or, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the young boxer, Definitely. you know. So, all right. Yeah. Well, then, you know, if if you're okay with it, kind of walk me through from getting to high school, you know, when when this when this depression, when this, you know, this um, self um, scolding got to the point where you couldn't bear it anymore. Yeah, so... Like I said, you know, high school was a roller coaster for me, you know, not being, you know, the having academics not come the easiest to me and putting my immense amounts of pressures on myself with that. And, you know, then cheerleading, having pressure there and the competitiveness of it. And then, you know, all of all of the factors, you know, that contributed to my depression and all, I, what I think like was the, the catalyst for my depression. Um all of those things never resulted or combinated in any suicide ideation. No, none of those things ever weighed heavy enough on me for me to contemplate suicide. Um, so for me, walking into, well, let me put it a different way. 
having gone through, having felt all of these feelings and having struggled with all these things and having felt all of these pressures, all of these years and everything combinating, adding on top of that, the fact that I never felt confident or comfortable enough sharing my vulnerable feelings or my thoughts. So no one in the world knew the way I was actually feeling. No one in the world would felt to me like it felt like no one in the world actually knew me. No one in the world actually knew what, who I really was. Um, I never really felt like I could be 100% authentically myself because like I said earlier, I never felt worthy. I never felt, you know, like I was good enough um, for, for anything. So, you know, but like I said, with all that, suicide was never really like prevalent in the picture there. So for me, you know, having like getting through high school all the way up to my junior year and then, you know, the going through my entire junior year and having, you know, my ups and downs, the highs and lows of, of that year coming into the se- summer, going into my senior year of high school, you know, not really knowing what I was going to be doing after, after senior year was over. And after college, like when college time happened, I didn't really know where I was going, what I was going to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I had no plans, no direction. I was extremely lost and I had kind of given up on the sport that I had lived my life doing. I had, it had kind of become boring to me and I didn't lost, I lost all interest in it. Um, so all of these, you know, spy down, downward spiraling factors kind of all combinated into a suicide attempt, which was the like the most impulsive thing that I've ever done. But at the same time, the biggest moment of crisis that I've ever experienced anything like that. So, but all in all, it was a sheer moment of crisis for me, not something planned, not something count like thought out. It was just a moment of sheer exhaustion, just pure exhaustion. I was just so tired of, putting on this front and having zero love or empathy for my own self. Um, And with that, not really even knowing who I was, you know, I had zero, absolutely no self-awareness, you know, and I, I was just extremely lost and hopeless. That's the biggest thing to tie it all together. Just hopeless. You know, I thought, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm exhausted. That's the best way I could put it. Now, leading up to that point, because the word exhausted kind of makes me think of this. What about your sleep? Had you been sleeping well up to that point? Um, You know, no one really asked me that question. But looking back, I, so I had mentioned that it was a summer going into my senior year of high school. Well, it was the beginning of June and we had just gotten home. I think it was two days 
after my mom and I had just gotten home from a three-day weekend trip in New York City. So a local photographer, I was a rep, senior rep for a local photographer, and she had planned a trip for her eight reps and their moms to go out to New, to New York for a weekend to do a sh- to do like a series of shoots. Um, it was greatest trip. It was so much fun. And I was on the like largest life high. Like it was just, I was on such a like extreme high and then coming down, coming home, you know, being forced down from that high, you know, I guess what I thought I have coming home with nothing to live for, you know, um, so, but you asked about sleep. So before my attempt, there was those two days. And I mean, I think I slept pretty good. I mean, I didn't like, I don't recall being deprived of any sleep, you know, not really being in my right mind. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause that's a, that's an important factor that a lot of people don't talk about, you know, when it comes to contributing factors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, it sounds like you said, if, if you weren't cognizant of, of not sleeping, then that probably wasn't one, but that is an yeah. important element where, you know, for those couple of days you felt like you, you were connected, like you had your identity again. And then, you know, I think, yeah. I think a lot of us, you know, we, we quote, quote, escape, whether it's a vacation, whether it's whatever, and for a brief moment, it's a new relationship. For a brief moment, it fixes it until it, it doesn't. And then reality comes back again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, like being only 16 years old, like never really having experienced anything like that, you know, never really having, I've never had that experience before. I've never felt like there was really anything to run from, you know, like, I mean, the issues in my life or the problems or whatever you want to call them were minor pretty much up until the end of middle school, beginning of high school, like end of eighth, end of eighth grade year, beginning of freshman year, you know, so not ever having experienced anything like that was definitely huge. Like it was heavy. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. What, so you know, you got, you, you walked us through to the point where, you know, you were at your lowest, you, you had that high, then you came down. So if you're comfortable sharing, you know, talk to me about the attempt and then, you know, the, the days after that. Yeah. So like I had mentioned, it was two days after we had landed home from New York and it was the summertime. So there was no school or anything like that, but I did have a job and Um, I don't really know exactly what I was going through, like what my problems were at that exact moment in my life, um, or that season of my life, but I can just remember having that, like being overcome with exhaustion of just life in general. I do vividly remember that feeling, um, of just not wanting to do it anymore. Um, So being that I had a little job in the summertime, you know, that was kind of what occupied most of my time. Um, And on, it was, I think, I don't remember what the day of the week it was, but I do remember the date. Um, It was June 7th, uh, and this was in 2017. 
Um, so I was 16 and I was turning, I would have been, I was turning 17 that August. Um, so, but I was 16 and I was at my house and that morning was like pretty much a typical morning. Um, my mom and dad left for work and they always come in my room and tell me bye in the morning. And so that happened. And then my brother at the time though, was living in Mississippi. Um, he was attending Mississippi college in Clinton, Mississippi. Um, and he was doing really well there. He was succeeding. He was playing baseball there. Um, he was a pre-med student. You know, he had, he had all these great things going for him in his life and all this direction. Um, so that definitely was a factor, you know, not having him home, um, was definitely really hard for me. Um, cause I've never had to not be with him growing up. So to have him, you know, not home to be at college is one thing to be, you know, at college away out of state is a, is a totally different thing. So that was really difficult. So, but I was home alone and I think I had work later on that evening and, um, my mom and I had gotten to an argument like earlier in the day and it had kind of, you know, faded out. And then she called me and we had a conversation and it was like, it just everything. I don't know why that moment. I don't know why that day. I don't know why. I don't know why the timing was what it was. But just like in an instant, everything just hit me and I just was overcome with emotion. And I still to this day have never experienced anything like that. Um, like if I, I, I've, that was the first time that I have ever experienced like a full on full fledged panic attack, like high, pure, like extreme hyperventilation, like clam, like clammy sweats, like hands were clammy, hysterically crying, like just shaking, like couldn't move, like immobile, like just all the things just completely out of nowhere, just hit me all at once. Um, and I just didn't know what to do. And I just can remember being so tired of just like, just like constantly having to go on with everything that was going on with my life. And it was like, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just, I just was kind of tap, like just tapping out. That's the best way I could put it. Just throwing in the towel. I was just like, I'm this life thing. I just, I don't want to do it. I'm not cut out for it. And, you know, you have to look at where I was, you know, 16 years old, you know, not really having, any greater perspective on life, you know, I didn't really have much or any at all faith. I didn't have any of that. I didn't, you know, think that there was anything greater after life, you know, and I never really had anything that I could look that for that, that far forward into, you know, um, I never really had any thing that I could be rooted in and kind of like lean on all like, you know, so that, that faith conversation is a whole different aspect of all of this, but um, 
but yeah, it just, it just all hit me at once and I just was overcome. And like I said earlier, it was just a sheer moment of crisis and I didn't see it coming. And obviously no one else around me saw it coming. Um, so that's part of the reason that the shock wave was so big around me and my community um, was the fact that literally no one saw it coming. Um, but yeah, and for me to even say that I didn't even see it coming is just wild in and of itself, you know, but it's the truth. So one thing that, that kind of struck me as well is, like you said, your your brother had moved away, but also with you not doing cheerleading, that kind of group that you were amongst wasn't around you. And also, again, something I see a lot now in my field is when people are depressed, they fill their time with busy work. And so before you were training with your cheer training all the time, and that was taken away now. So did you find yourself with just more time to think? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um, Definitely had a lot more free time, a lot more time to myself. Um, And my dad's always said, you know, uh, idle time is the devil's playground. And he's, you know, was always worried that we wouldn't, my brother and I wouldn't be busy, that we weren't doing something. Um, you know, growing up, that was very aggravating and he was just nagging, you know, why, why aren't you doing anything? What are you doing today? What'd you do today? Kind of thing. But now I'm grateful for it. Cause that's like, definitely, definitely for sure. You know, not having, things to do or people to be around community to be around, you know, definitely was a negative, a negative thing that happened in my life at that time. And being that I didn't really have those obligations anymore, you know, I didn't have chair practice anymore. I didn't really have any of those things to really worry about. Um, You know, I spent my free time probably doing things I shouldn't have been doing you know, hanging out with people I shouldn't have been hanging out with, you know, doing things that I know my mom and dad would not approve of, you know, spending a lot of time with people who my parents, who I know my parents are not the biggest fans of, you know, for their, for good reasons, you know, so definitely having that, that, that extra free time, you know, having given up all of the things that were previously keeping me busy, which looking back, you know, I like to think that those were subtle cries for help, you know, like just, and I emphasize on subtle because, you know, not that those behaviors were me actively consciously crying for help, but they sort of low key were, you know, me giving up cheerleading, not really wanting to do it anymore. Me not really having any desire to go visit any colleges or even really talk about college or having anything planned for the next day, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's another topic that's come up. Um, in one of my conversations, I forget who it was now, but this was a significant stressor and that was graduation. 
Mm-hmm. Like there are people that know what they want to do. I've got, you know, especially the military men and women, a lot of them, you know, were playing with GI Joes, you know, and they knew when they were six, that they were going to join the military. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, funny enough, had wanted to become a firefighter and I was told I was colorblind. So I ended up fumbling through life for many years because the career I wanted to do, I was told I couldn't. So then I was, you know, um, directionless for quite a while. And, you know, I, I definitely went through times where I was, I mean, depressed, for lack of a better word, because I didn't know what the hell I was supposed to do. And it took me years to challenge the colorblindness test and actually become the career that I did. And I was happy. So there we go. But I don't think that we give enough credit to the fact that at uh, 18 in America, at 16 in England, that we thrust our children out and be like, right, go, go make money, go make a career. Because some mm-hmm. will be ready and some won't be ready. The age is 16 in England? It is. Yeah. So and I, I was. Yeah. So you guys graduate, what is it, high school? Yeah. So it's uh, what they call senior school. Now you can do two more years, which is kind of a bridge, and then go into college, we call A levels. But yeah, you do your GCSE, which would be your high school diploma at 16, and then you're out. So yeah, it's, it's quite a, a kick up the ass. <laughs> That's, that, that explains a lot, though, because, you know, I follow a lot of like, bloggers from from the uk and they're like my age and they're like what very well established and like have their lives fully together and i'm like well they appear to (laughs) well (laughs) that's the catch yes that's the catch but no um yeah absolutely i mean the pressures that society has placed on that generation of people as a whole it's just, it's, it's ridiculous for lack of better words. I mean, it's just, and you know, not only society, but now the people, the individuals are placing the pressure, that same pressure on themselves too. So not only like, you know, not only do you have the external pressures, but you also have the internal pressures that you're dealing with. So that could be, and that could be a lot. And then, you know, like, you know, the common thread of this conversation has been, that no one knows about it because no one talks about it because no one wants to anyone to know about it because no one wants that to be the case for them. No one wants to admit that they don't know what the hell they want to do with their lives or, you know, so, but that was definitely me. I didn't, I didn't have any real big interests. You know, I was never like, I was always envious of the kids that knew, you know, from, grade school that they wanted to be whatever they wanted to be and had this perfectly aligned and planned out, structured out, color-coded map of how to get there and what they were going to do to get there and how they were going to do it. Meanwhile, I'm just like, what's for lunch at school? You know, like... <laughs> but that's probably most people, though. That's what's, that's what's I mean, sad. Like, like, I'm, no, yeah, I know that now because that's the people that I surround myself with is people that are like-minded in me. And, you know, for the longest time being in high school, I, like I said, I made that comment, like, I didn't think anyone that, I didn't feel like anyone really knew me because they didn't, because it wasn't really me, you know, like, that's why I'm, like you said, being on the other side of all this, it's like, I'm fully me and I'm fully with people that are just like me. And it's the greatest because I was somebody that I wasn't. And I didn't like those people that I was around because they weren't like me. They weren't my, my niche, you know? So, um, I had no major interest. I mean, I was interested in cheerleading, 
but what are you going to do be a professional cheerleader? Yeah. Right. So like, and like I said, I wasn't good at any, I wasn't really, there was no subject or like thing that I was actually very like good at, you know, I was good at everything, but not great at anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of that, so when you were at the school age, did you have in an ideal world, if everything went right, was there a career that you would have loved to have done that you th- thought about when you were when in high I was school age? Yeah. No, that was the thing. Like I was never the one to be like, I want to be this. I want to be that. Like I could, I, I, okay. If I think back to whenever, cause that's obviously a very common question that people ask youth is, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, do you know whenever I would be asked that question, I can remember a couple of times what I would answer. And my answer was a wedding planner, but that that's cause I was a little girl. So like that, that really had no like weight behind it. And that really never came to fruition because I don't want to do that. I would never want to do that. You know? So like there, but there was nothing that like really like intrigued me or interest me. And I mean, like, there was plenty of direction in high school to help you with that. Um, it was shoved down your throat. In fact, like we had a whole class freshman year called career readiness, where you literally map out what your high school is going to look like. Your, your academics in high school is going to look like that way. You can better equip you for whenever you're entering into college. Like that's literally a whole class freshman year. So then here I am the kid that's like, well, I don't like numbers. I don't like math. I don't like science. I don't like history. I don't like English. I don't like to read. I don't really like to write. I like to watch movies. I like to cheerlead. I like to hang out. You know, like for that kid, it's like, well, well you can't really put a direction to that. No, but you're you know? 14. And that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I've had the- well, I was- 13. Oh, you were young. Yeah. My son's going to yeah. be the same. I was, I was a young in high school. Like my freshman year was for 2014, but I was 13. I was turning 14 that year. So and he, I-, I know has struggled and he's doing really well now, but in his elementary years, because he was the youngest and wasn't gifted academically, I use that word gifted because you have yeah. to be to, to hang with people yeah. almost a year older than you at that developmental sure. age. Did you, do you think that that age factored in a little bit to feeling behind the curve academically? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt, because I literally like some people that I went to school with, because I, I went to the same school pretty much since like I, I started at my school, Dutchtown, when I was in fourth grade and I graduated Dutchtown. So like I was there pretty much my whole time, but Definitely. There were some people that I went to school with that were like almost. Were there any? There were people more than a year older than me. Definitely. In my same class. So that was definitely, definitely contributing. Like there were people getting their driver's license before I could even apply to get a permit. That's the significance of the gap. So definitely it was just like not a good time to be that age like in that group well for the boys too i mean i've watched you know i'm not sure this is for the for the girls but i mean especially the boys knowing that feeling of vulnerability now my little boy is built like me he's he's you know skinny and and not 
big for his size and then you make him a year younger than a lot of the kids in his age group that are big for their age and you've got like a three four grade disparity basically so right. i think you know that feeling of vulnerability especially amongst the males is another element you know of, well, of feeling like a child standing alongside men right well and then too for females it's like you know being like i was almost like i said i was a year younger than half of my classmates so like you know starting puberty like i didn't hit puberty until i was almost i I didn't hit puberty until high school. Like I was like a very late bloomer. And then on top of that, being a late bloomer, I was a little behind, like further behind them. So I even had more of a race to run. So like, yeah, I didn't start to develop or anything like that. And I had a raspy voice my whole life. And it's with puberty, it's actually gotten lighter, like not as deep, but growing up as a kid, I had like a deep voice and a snaggle tooth and, yeah, it was just a mess. Yeah, well, we were all awkward children. That's the thing. Again, you look and think that so-and-so is beautiful. And I tell you right now, when you see so-and-so when they're 40, the tables turn. So don't be stuck on that, <laughs> that pretty girl or boy. But yeah, I, I was skinny. I had dry skin. I had buck teeth. I had a blonde afro. I mean, you know, that's that's the other thing. I mean, I think that through our eyes and you see this all the time like the girls with straight hair want curly hair the girls with curly hair want straight hair you know the, the it just it everyone wants something else and the reality yeah. is again we're all self-conscious of the way we look and the ones that aren't are probably narcissists that are struggling with their own mental health too so <laughs> we yeah. all are you know yeah yeah we all we all want to be loved and we all want to be accepted like just it's just natural it's human like that's just like innate you know, like we all want to be accepted. We all want to feel important, you know, and we all want to be heard, you know, and like you said, those who don't present to, you know, be that way are nine times out of 10 narcissists who are dealing with their own set of problems. Yeah. Absolutely. I used to think that, you know, the beautiful people were the ones to envy. And now with this different lens I have, I've, I've, feel sorry for them like i wonder what happened to them that they became you know this this person that can't stop but take pictures of themselves with their shirt off (laughs) yeah you and me both and it's like we've kind of somehow generated into an era of literally like no one has an ugly phase anymore like no one goes through that that stage of life where it's like you can look back on and just laugh at like there's no like everyone is always perfect like I look at girls in high school now and like even middle school like it's even as crazy as young as middle school and they're all like so like put together and just like like it just like so that makes me feel so bad for like the little girls and the youth and everything right now because it's like this is what they have to compare themselves to you know, this is what they're all comparing themselves to, you know, and it's just not realistic. Well, I mean, in this conversation, we've identified so many, so many elements. I think the school, I actually had a guy from Finland who is one of their, you know, big speakers on the Finnish system. And they look at children holistically. They look at them as the whole child. So they're, they're far less standardized testing focused. And, you know, like you said, getting a 14 year old to plan the next 
10 years of their life so that they're ahead of their GPA and their entrance exams and they're doing their volunteer work even though they don't want to actually volunteer because they're not taught to be kind. Um, you know, and, and so it's, we have to look at the way we do school. I mean, that, that fast track to university doesn't mean success. I mean, I tell you right now, there are hundreds of thousands of adults with, crippling student debt that haven't been able to use a degree to do anything they they graduated they did it but mm-hmm. doesn't didn't add them any value to their lives yeah and i think that's too that's such a common conversation in my household for sure because neither one of my parents went to college and they have made a life for themselves we mean my parents are very successful very successful and they didn't mm-hmm. they don't have a piece of paper you know they don't have that degree but and that is so true. I have, I know several adults that don't use their degree and are in massive debts, a massive amounts of debt, you know? Um, but it's just, it's just, yeah, it's this, it's the school systems. It's just, it's like, it's almost burned into our brains that, you know, if you don't go to college and you don't have this master plan for your life, then you're going to be a failure and you're not going to get anywhere and you're going to be Joe Blow on the side of the road. So, but it's, it's like the complete opposite. Like that's like literally the complete opposite of the truth. That's the complete opposite of reality. You know, like I know whenever my, whenever, because my dad says it all the time, whenever he was in high school, they had shop class and they had like home ec and things like that, that like that classes that were dedicated for people that knew that they college was not going to be for them, that they didn't want to do the whole classroom environment they didn't want to have to do the whole school thing you know but they had these other careers that were out there professions that were out there interests and things that like that that there were out there that they were being exposed to that we unfortunately for whatever reason aren't being exposed to anymore in school it's just go to college go go for four years or more graduate and then get a job yeah no but that's just it i mean i i got my degree i finished it up quite late in life and i would say it's applied to what i do it gives me what i call clout you know when people look at the podcast and who is this this idiot and they go oh yeah he's got a you know uf degree in xviz okay maybe he knows a little bit about and really the most of my knowledge has come from real world stuff and seminars and you know all that kind of thing but the fire service that's a that's a you know trade school Nursing school was a trade school, EMT, plumber, carpenter, mechanic. Those are all things that we rely on that keep the world running, you know, and then even, even the medical school route. I've talked about this a lot. There's so many BS prereqs that rack up these student debts rather than getting these people in earlier and getting them on the anatomy and physiology route and actually learning about healing people. So, what they, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that that is. So it's, it's such a shame, honestly, because you're, you're right. Like I was, I was never exposed to any of these other career fields. Obviously, you know, I knew about police, policemen and firefighters and, you know, the frontline first responders that you see, but there's so many other things out there that, that people do that are just not really seen because I guess, I don't know why, but. But yeah, there's so many other career fields out there that aren't 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 made known to youth. And like, I mean, I would have never known like <clears throat> a couple 
months back. So like, I don't want to put this. Okay. So what was it? November, October, November of last year, I think something like that. I started working for the sheriff's office and I had no idea that you didn't have to go to college to work for a sheriff. Like I had no idea. And that, that like, that's just the start of the things that I learned, like being out of high school, like the things that I thought that you had to have a college degree for, but you actually don't like, there's so many jobs out there that you don't need to get, you know, college educated on to be able to, to do and be good at, you know, there's a lot of other professions out there that you can do. Yeah. And you're working in dispatch. Yes. Yeah. I was working at dispatch at the sheriff's office and uh, it was actually kind of a really full circle moment because it was actually the same sheriff's office and dispatch center that took my call. Um, so it was very full circle, but extremely epic, extremely epic. Like it was insane. Um, so yeah, it was one of the most short-lived experiences that I've had, but one of the greatest experiences that I've had. And why was it short-lived? Um, I couldn't do the hours. Physically, physically on my body, I just couldn't do the hours. Um, just the shift work, you know, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. or vice versa. I could not do it. And then a couple of other things, you know, I'm literally so directionally challenged. And when it comes to geography, I just, I'm not good at it. So I'll, that was just something that I didn't really, wasn't a strong suit and it need to be in that position. You need, you need to know your parish, like the back of your hand. Um, but and I did, I don't. Um, so that was very, very frustrating being in that position. Um, and a couple other factors, but the biggest one was the schedule and the hours. I just couldn't do the shift work. Um, and then of course, you know, the 24 seven job, you know, when you're on call, you can't leave. You have to be within so many miles and, um, it's very, very taxing job, very, very demanding job. And I just, it wasn't something that I thought that I would want to do long-term. So I had to throw in the towel there, but super grateful for the experiences and the things I learned. There's so much that I learned so much and the respect that I gained for so many people is, uh, it's like insane. I think you made a good choice though. And the reason I say that is I know, again, from doing this, from obviously living it myself, but then the research side, talking about sleep deprivation again, it, it takes a toll on the body. And if like you, you're still recovering from trauma physically and mentally, um, that's not a good environment to be in. So I think, I think for your own health, you made a good choice and it's not, it's not failing. You tried it, but I don't think people realize how detrimental shift work is to the human body yeah it, it's it's insane and like uh growing up my dad sometimes would have to work shift work like sometimes you know depending on what job he was on or whatever you know that would be the schedule or whatever but 
you know, it was weird to watch him come in, come and go and sleep during the day sometimes and, you know, things like that. But I never really fully understood why he hated his job so much during those times. Like I never really got that, but working for, you know, less than three months of shift work, it's, it's, it's miserable. It's miserable. It can be miserable. Um, cause I know it's not miserable for everybody. I know for some people, they, they can do it and they like it. They thrive off of it, but it can be miserable. Um, it's extremely, extremely taxing on the body. And then when you throw in a spinal cord injury, you know, neuropathy, you know, nervous system damage, that doesn't help. Um, and then two, you know, the weight of the job being a dispatcher, um, you know, that definitely plays a toll and takes a toll on your mental health. Um, you know, and then not only all of that to take into account, but the pressures of the job and just the speed at which things need to be done. It just, it was just a, a personally in all aspects, I couldn't handle it physically, mentally, emotionally, couldn't handle it. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was a, a bad fit for where you are right now. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about the same dispatch center receiving the call. So if you were okay telling the story, you know, what happened on, on June 7th and then kind of, you know, walk me through from when you woke up onwards. Yeah. So on June 7th, um, like I said, it was a normal day. I just woke up and I think I had work later on that day and I had gotten to a little bit of an argue with my mom and we had resolved the argument and then she had went back to work and then a phone call was made and she called me and like I had just I had mentioned earlier, I had a full on panic attack and I just was the, at my breaking point and it was just the first time that I had felt like I didn't want to do it anymore. Like I was just extremely hopeless and just at a place of pure exhaustion and just confusion because I didn't know why, what was going on. I didn't know what to do or where to go next. Um, so I was still on the phone with my mom and, you know, previously I had no idea or thought of like suicide or anything like that. But, you know, being on being in that state of mind of the, the full panic attack and then coming to a point of not knowing what to do or not really wanting to do anything anymore. Um, you know, that's just pure exhaustion. I just kind of wanted to just tap out and you know the only way the only method that ever crossed my mind was to use a firearm and I, I knew that way I had one and because you know we had I'd been familiar with it he familiarized me with it and um things like that and so I went into his room and like I said I was home alone and I was still on the phone with my mom but at the time she was working at the front desk at um, a plant and so she had to take all the incoming calls um so she had to place me on hold you know periodically um while she was at work and so honestly I don't even remember much of 
those critical moments leading up to the attempt. Um, I really don't remember all of the details, really any details at all. In fact, I just remember very like big things. So like, obviously, you know, I was on the phone with my mom. I remember that. I remember being in her room. Um, I remember all of those details, but in terms of actually me remembering me acting on that or doing those actions or anything like that. I don't remember. I don't remember me doing anything. Um, but I, the memory does come back very clear and vivid, like instantly after it happened. So like I gain regain memory as soon as the trigger went off. Like I remember how loud it was. I remember the ringing in my ears. I remember, my, you know, taste, the, the funny taste in my mouth with, you know, the gunpowder. Just remember all of those like horror, like horror details. Um, Clear's day. I remember, I remember, remember those. Um, and I even was conscious long enough to remember hearing my mom come back on the phone. Um, which, you know, thank God that we had been on the phone because, you know, I had never told her because I had never thought about it. So obviously that was not something in anyone's mind. Um, so her being on the other end of the phone and then coming back to the line, not hearing me respond, you know, that propelled her into a panic. And then she sprung up on her desk and got into her car and sped home. So, you know, who knows if we hadn't been on the phone, you know, what the outcome could have been, but she was compelled to come home, you know, because she didn't, you know, like I said, I hadn't warned her. I didn't tell her, you know, that this is what I was planning to do. I never made mention of it. Um, But the last thing that I remember saying to her was, you know, I just need help. I just need you to help me or something along those lines. Um, And so that is just about where my memory kind of shuts back off um, was hearing her come back on the line. Um, And then, so after that, it's pretty much dark. And then I lost about three days, I would think, like give or take like three-ish days um, I lost, like, I don't remember any of those moments or any of those, any, anything that happened within those three days. Um, so the first thing that I do remember the first form of recollection that I do have, you know, after the last, where we left off, um, would be waking up in, in the ICU, um, you know, being in a room that was very sterile, um, which I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they make hospitals so sterile looking and, you know, not, not, not warm and inviting, but um, waking up in that room, seeing all the monitors around me being intubated, you know, being hooked up to all these machines, you know, being extremely vulnerable. Um, you know, I was, had no recollection of what happened. I think trauma did, does that to us. I think it blocks out, some some 
of the heavier things that we experience. Um, so I attribute, I attest that, or I attribute that to the trauma, um, not remembering what happened right away. Um, so, but I had no recollection of anything like I, but I do remember feeling so much physical pain, um, within my body, um, that I had a thought, you know, whenever I was coming to that, I had somehow been attacked or that someone, you know, physically assaulted me. Um, that was what one of the first initial thoughts that had crossed my mind whenever I was coming off of the station in the hospital was, Oh my gosh, you know, I just, maybe someone assaulted me or I was attacked or something along those lines because of the physical pain I was in. But, you know, as far as having any idea that I had shot myself in the chest, like, no, like no idea, no clue. And that took about, uh, like a probably a, like a day or so, honestly, for me to fully remember and be able to recall what happened. And even then the details were still very foggy and very unclear, but um, just over time, you know, no, that is a question that people ask me all the time. It's like, Oh, did someone come in and tell you what happened? And I'm like, you know, no, but over time, you know, it slowly came back to me. Um, but, you know, no one told me up, outright what happened. Um, like I said, it did slowly come back to me, but, you know, I was outright told that I was paralyzed, you know, and that was hard, like obviously hard to hear um, being that I had no way of reacting or responding because whenever I found out I was still intubated and hooked up to all these machines in the hospital. So there was really no real way for me to have a, a genuine reaction to that. Um, so I was in a little bit of denial for that for a little while. And then, you know, stepping into this new life and having these challenges, these physical challenge and these, you know, these new disabilities, you know, added to my plate. It was just like, I was grateful that I was still here. I never once was like, oh, well, I, you know, this sucks. I wish I would, I wish it would have worked. Like I never once, that, that never was a thought that crossed my mind. You know, from the moment that that pulled the trigger, there was instant regret, like just immense instant regret. Um, I say all the time, instant is not even a strong enough word to describe how quick the feeling of regret overtook me. Um, it was like a movie, you know, whenever you see someone dying in a movie, they have their scene of the life flashing for their eyes. And, you know, that's exactly how it was for me. You know, I fully went through everything like that. Like I literally had that revelation moment. Um, so that was never something that I felt. I never felt like I failed in that attempt. Um, or let me rephrase that. I never felt like I wanted to succeed in that attempt. Um, but, you know, like being, being, have, having lived through that and then having, ha having to take home 
things as a result, you know, like having things changed, having survived that. And then on top of that, having, having had things change on your body, possibly forever, having to live with these things that happen because of this thing that you tried to do. It's, it's, it's a never ending back and forth warfare that I go through of feeling like a victim, but feeling like a perpetrator at the same time, because I'm so glad that I lived. I'm so glad that I made it through that. You know, it's a series of miracles that kept me here and people that kept me here. I know that. And I fully feel that I fully believe that to be the truth. However, when you, I just, it could have, it all could have been avoided. And I guess that's why I, that's what drives my passion with sharing my story is because I just, obviously, you know, there's so many reasons why suicide is, is just devastating in all aspects and all areas and all corners. But I just don't want anyone to have, to have gotten this far or have, I just don't want anyone to have to take it that far because I'm grateful that I made it out of that. I'm grateful that I made it out alive. I really am. But my life's a lot harder now and it could have been avoided if I would have just opened up and been vulnerable and shared my truth and just not been ashamed of what I was going through and not been ashamed of who I really was. You know, if I learned to accept myself and love myself and, you know, if I, if I implemented all these new, if I implemented all these ways of thinking then, you know, and if I would have just allowed myself to be vulnerable and open up, then, then who knows, maybe I wouldn't have had to suffer so much physically. Maybe I wouldn't have had to gone through all of the physical things that I've gone through, all of the grief that I've gone through, you know? So that's kind of where the power comes behind the message with me. But because my physical was affected forever by this, you know? Well, and again, that's something that, you know, I, I hear over and over again. So the, the two, the two things that really resonate with me with people who, were either stopped right before or actually like Kevin Hines, um, you know, took, pursued the act of doing it, but it survived, you know, the attempt yeah. and had some people that pulled the trigger and the, the hammer fell and it didn't go off. I mean, some pretty miraculous, crazy stories, which is beautiful. Um, but, uh, is a lot of times there's a feeling of burden. And I talk about this a lot on here. One of the most, horrendous things that someone not in crisis can say is oh suicide is cowardly it's it's you know the easy way out you know which is complete crap because anyone in crisis that i've spoken to reports the same thing of feeling like a burden to everyone around them and there's a selfless act they're relieving the burden from their family you know and then the other thing is wanting the pain to end but right. with kevin with so many other people that you know especially like kevin who had that moment that free fall to process how they were feeling it was instant regret so you know i think it's such a powerful insight that you have and you know obviously one of the reasons why you survived was to tell your story my uh my wife now her boyfriend before me 
was on the phone and took his own life, shot himself on a beach, um, and she heard everything, you know. And sadly, he's not he here to the, tell. Yeah, she was on the phone with him. She, yeah, she was on the phone when he actually pulled the trigger. So, you know, that that's the thing is that you are the voice for all those people that didn't make it. And as you said, trying to reprogram, trying to to shed light on all these areas that we spent an hour discussing, all these contributing factors that lead people to that moment of crisis. And I, yes. you know, I talk about a lot there, it, you know, if, if you and I went to the top of a building now and we went to the edge of edge of the building, we'd feel that little invisible hand pushing us away. Well, people in crisis, whether it's sleep deprivation, childhood trauma, you know, all these things, just add all these little bits that we talked about, all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, that hand shifts and it goes behind you and it pushes you towards the edge. And we have to understand that the more of those pieces that we understand, the more that we bring out into daylight, the less power the the dark side of the brain has for pushing people to to where you found yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was spot on. I mean, I think obviously there's a lot that needs to be done to break break this curse. That's what I like to call it. Um, the curse of the brain, the curse of mental illness. Um, but ultimately, it's just we've got to start talking about our brain pain. Like we've got to start talking about it. We've got to normalize it. Like it's just, it baffles me to think that we think of the brain like it's some unhuman thing when in reality it is an organ just like our heart or our stomach. It's just, it, it baffles me. So um, we've got to start, we've got to shift that, that mentality. Um, and I don't know how else to do it other than, like you said, being the voice for the, 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 the one, the un more unfortunate stories, you know? Well, well I want to get to, um, uh, Karen's story in a second, because that's, I think, probably one of the most traumatizing areas of the film. But before we do, you know, that there's there's that blip, that moment where, you know, you pulled the trigger or you were in crisis and obviously there, there was a physical cost to that. However, the watching you grow physically, watching you go from lying in a bed to taking steps to standing in your graduation ceremony to, you know, you know, the, the, the time with your boyfriend. I mean, that's another beautiful journey. And yes, you know, as you said, there, there is a detriment physically to that moment. But I found it hugely inspiring that you were able to to have such an incredibly powerful response to the physical therapy. So walk me through your mental journey because it takes, you know, courage. It takes a freaking strong, strong person to go through what you went through to end up physically where you are now. So what was that self-talk? And then, you know, what about the physical side? What were the things that really worked for you? Yeah, so that... Like you, you're right. I mean, I had not only the mental and emotional journey to tackle, but also the physical journey as well. So, but honestly, the first journey that I really started on was the physical one because the not, I mean, the number one thing that was on my, on my mind, you know, in those, in those, you know, early days was 
will I ever walk again? I need to start. I need to walk again. You know, I, I need to become normal again because I was 16. You know, I would, I should have been, you know, enjoyed my summer going into senior year. I shouldn't, I didn't have, to, I shouldn't have been in that position. So that was definitely one of the first priorities that I like established in my life. And during that time was getting my physical recovery on, like on, on track and starting it out. And I, it was to this day, like the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. It's one hands down, like the hardest thing that I've ever experienced. Um, because not only is it a physical journey, but it's also, it's, it's more so mental because the physical is controlled by the mental. So the things that were injured within my body were things that are not the easiest fixes. Like you can't just get an operation and just automatically be back to normal. You know, like the physical therapy was extremely intense and took a lot of brain power, a lot of visualization of you know, what I wanted to make my body do again, you know, and it hurt. I mean, it was very painful. You know, the recovery was like not, it wasn't fun. It really wasn't fun. There was really no time that I was like, oh, yay, therapy. <laughs> it didn't look like it from the video. <laughs> yeah. Like even up until I got home from the hospitals and home from the rehab hospital and started driving, like I didn't want to go to therapy. Like I didn't want to do it because it wasn't fun. It was painful. And, but I'm so glad that I did choose to tackle the physical first because they say, you know, that, you know, you, you, with a neuro, with a neurological injury, you know, you typically will get your best results within the first year, you know, so I'm super proud and thankful that, I made that a priority as early on as I did because I don't think I would have come as far if I hadn't made it a priority right from the jump. Um, so, but yeah, it's just uh, it to say that it was like a journey that I would like do again. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't in a million years. Um, but after that journey, you know, kind of had come to a, a head and a close, then I really had time to sit back and reflect on my emotional healing and my, my mental healing too, which was tough, not as tough as a physical, you know, healing, but, um, it, it was, it was really difficult to come to come to grips with everything and accept what I had tried to do as the reality. Um, because I was in a little bit of denial for a little bit, you know, I had thought that it was just a nightmare, you know, that there was, a, there was a, something, something else that happened that no one was talking about, you know, like I was in a little bit of denial for a little while. Um, but Definitely once I got home from the hospitals and like I said, my physical recovery kind of slowed, 
started to slow down and I started to kind of hit a peak um, or a plateau rather. Um, that's whenever I started to really dive deep into, into my, my emotional and mental healing. Now with the, the physical journey, was there a milestone that you hit the, the first one that really then, you know, spurred you on, gave you encouragement and, uh, um, you know, the energy to, to reach the next step? Um, there was honestly no milestone that I hit that was like, oh yeah, I can do this what gave me that next level of encouragement was the fact that I found this girl, Victoria Arlen. Um, she, her story is kind of bizarre and crazy. So she like had some type of uh, autoimmune disease that um, didn't come to fruition until she was like a kid, like I think eight or nine. And then um, all of a sudden, she just like lost all feeling and all, all mobility and all of her body. And she was wheelchair bound for pretty much all her childhood. Um, like, like power chair, not like manual wheelchair, like power chair bound, um, kind of hundred percent dependent, you know, like she couldn't really do anything on her own. Um, they obviously didn't know why this was happening. They didn't know what the cause reason, whatever, um, I'm not sure what her diagnosis is. I don't quite remember it, but she basically made a full recovery and overcame that. And she's actually the one that I found out, like, she's the reason I know about Project Walk, um, because of her story, um, she was on Dance with the Stars and came across her story through that show and was completely just... I had never been so inspired in my life and saw what she did and saw the things that she overcame. And I was like, I want to do that. I was like, I can do that. So then the journey of me trying to find a, find out exactly how she did what she did and got to where she got began. And there were times, you know, in, in the journey of me trying to, there was a lot of times that I would compare my injuries to hers and I would like get really, really down on that because I would be like, well, her injuries are different than mine. So am I really going to be able to make this full recovery like she did, you know? So, but overall she was really the driving force for that extra push and motivation that I needed to kind of like really get me back, get me back up on my feet. Now, where are you at now? Because obviously the documentary is a, a few months old. So on your yeah, mobility. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm 100% independent. I mean, as far as a full recovery goes, technically I'm not textbook full recovery. I, did, I don't. I mean, I still use a wheelchair. I still use my walker. Um, so technically I still am disabled. But I'm not. Like I'm, I'm the most able-bodied disabled person you've ever, you'll, you'll ever meet. Like I function, like you function. I drive like you drive. Like I don't have hand controls. I don't have any adaptions or adaptations to my vehicle. I get in my car, put my wheelchair in the trunk, drive to work, get out, get to work, get my wheelchair out of the trunk and roll in. And I can stand for extended periods of time. I can take steps. 
um, with assistance. I can take on assisted steps when I'm in a comfortable environment and my body's my body's comfortable and it's warm. You know, on a good day, I can take on assisted steps. Um, there's not there's there's nothing I can't do. There are things that take me a little longer to do, um, but I can still do them. There's things that trying to think of one thing that I can't do anymore that I used to be able to do. Nothing. Yeah. Cause even I, I guarantee you, if you look at in the cheerleading world, I'm sure there are some incredible adaptive cheerleaders that can do exactly like you're saying, pretty much the same thing as any other yeah. uses term well, loosely, mean, you know, able body. Well, I mean, now I'm thinking I can't run a mile. I can't run a marathon yet. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> you never know. But in terms of like the way I feel about my recovery is I'm fully recovered because this is fully recovered. This is fully, re- this is fully recovered. So, you know, what's left to come with the physical, what's going to be and what is what's going to be. And I don't, I mean, I don't stop. I don't let myself stop. You know, so who knows what's going to happen. But I mean, I've overcome so much. I've gotten this far. I don't, I don't put limits on myself. I don't put expectations for myself either, though. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, one thing that, again, is a common thread for people who have come out the other side. It's an ongoing thing. Like you said, you have ups and downs. Well, that's the human experience we all do, you know? And I think that's the one, again, the the fallacies, like after a mental health battle, that it should be this like flat, even life the rest of your life, which is complete rubbish. Um, But one thing I've found that, again, seems to really be a, a common denominator is once people are out the other side and they find a purpose, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's becoming an advocate, that seems incredibly healing for the person themselves. Not only are they doing good in the world, but it seems to really magnify their own healing. So tell me about how, you know, when you got into, um, you know, being a voice for, for mental health and, and obviously suicide prevention, and, and was there that effect on you as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a funny story whenever we talk about this topic. So coming out of the hospital, I had accepted what I had done. I had, I had come to terms with it somewhat. Um, I was still embarrassed to a certain extent. Um, but for the most part, I was okay with what happened. Um, however, I had no intention of opening up or sharing my story with anyone outside of my community and my little town of Dutchtown, Louisiana, any year, if you don't know what happened, then you're not going to know what happened. That's how I feel, felt about it. I did not have any intention of getting my message or sharing my story of hope out. None of that. Like I was going to heal physically and just keep on with my life. That was my goal um, or my plan rather. But um, obviously not all things go to plan, but um so I had come to terms with it and I was okay with it. But when I got home, my dad stumbled across Kevin Hines video on Facebook and he showed it to me and I was like, Oh, 
well, this isn't so bad. Like, this is actually pretty cool. Like, this is actually pretty interesting. Like, here's this guy that survived this and is like actually brave enough to share that, like, and is bold enough to admit that. Um, because, you know, suicide is such a taboo thing. You know, no one does that. Not, not my community, you know, not, not me, you know, can't be me. Um, so I thought that that was really cool that he was on Buzz, Buzzfeed, you know, talking about it so openly and then sharing all these facts and these statistics that I had no idea about, you know, so that really interests me and intrigued me, but still didn't have any, any ideas of like starting that myself. I was like, Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, good for him kind of thing. But my mom was like very adamant on getting my story out there. She wanted me to use my story as a message. And I think a little bit of her initial intention though was that she wanted to help me heal. She wanted to look for an outlet to help me work through my emotions rather than suppressing them. She wanted me to have something to do kind of like journaling. That was kind of think her intention with the blog um, that I did and eventually end up starting. Um, So she did encourage me to start journaling, to start writing my feelings and my thoughts down. And um, slowly but surely that encouragement turned into her idea of starting a blog. Well, she pitched the idea to me, hated it, didn't want anything to do with it. And it was kind of a dud, you know. Well, she brought the idea back up to my my attention and I heard her out again and I told her I would sleep on it, think on it, pray on it. Well, I didn't think on it. I didn't really think much at all, actually. It just kind of hit me. Like, I mean, I thought about it a little bit, you know, here and there, but I never thought about, oh, what would that look like? You know, I never like actually put like deep thought into it. Like it crossed my mind here and there, but I never like actually put, put deep thought into like what it would look like for me to actually have a blog, for me to actually share my story with people. Like I never actually thought about that. Um, but it just hit me one day. It just like, call it what you want. I call it God, but it just like something told me like, you need to do this. Like you need, you need to do it. Um, so then one thing led to another and my website was born and the blog began and the response that I got was phenomenal. I couldn't have like imagined a better, greater response from the readers. Um, and then, so then I felt a little bit of purpose there. You know, I felt like, oh, wow, people actually can connect to me. People can actually relate to what I have to say. You know, people actually want to hear what I have to say. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a purpose there. But at that time, though, I know you had mentioned that, you know, sometimes a lot of times people let, you know, share their story and stuff. It's a way of healing themselves. Well, I didn't think that way. I didn't want that to be the case for me. I didn't want, I didn't want to allow me sharing my story to a lot like heal me. I didn't want it to be a healing factor for me. Um, I don't know why that was the case. I don't know why I was on the fence about that so much, but I was, and I fought that so much. Um, but over time, you know, Greg found my blog and he reached out to me and he put me on the panel for the ripple effect. And one thing led to another after another into another, 
now we have this beautiful documentary film and this mission and I, it has absolutely undoubtedly been the greatest healer because I've seen so much good and I've, I've made so many connections, lifelong connections. And it has like, I mean, I thought I had perspective then when I was in the hospital and stuff, but boy, do I have perspective now. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Like the experiences and the things that I've learned and the the conversations that I've had, just the perspective that I've gained is just wild. It's just wild. So absolutely, without a doubt, sharing my story helps me heal. Well, there's a, there's a few things from that I want to kind of pull out. Firstly, when you felt like you didn't want it to heal, you think that was the remnants of that old internal monologue that you had? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think it probably because, you know, I didn't become this new person overnight. I mean, I sort of did. My dad would tell you that I did. But I I didn't because there was a lot of those old habits and those old thought those old thought patterns that would resurface from time to time that I would have to like sit back and gain that self-awareness. That's the biggest thing that I've gained through all this is the self-awareness because those, you know, dark little parasite bugs, they don't just disappear. They don't just go away. So whenever those, you know, moments and thoughts like that like oh I don't want it to be a healer for me like that's can't possibly work for me you know you know being in such denial about that definitely definitely was remnants of what I used to be so that I mean that that was hard to to have to break break those barriers and like break those habits because I had thought that way I had like kind of train my mind into thinking that way like with that mentality for so many years so to cut out of that and actually be authentically me was scary so I think I was just scared of it see and this is funny because it's the same thoughts but you just viewed them differently instead of before thinking you know that they were right listening to them now you looked at them, as you said, as a bug, as a parasite, as a cancer. And once you were able to see that way, they, they lost their power. I mean, again, like you said, it wasn't overnight, but it's like, they say, meditation. You don't just yeah. suddenly shut off the mind, but you just see your squirrel brain and you're like, oh, I see you, but I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be drawn in. And so, yeah, it's very, very powerful observation. Yeah. It is. It, um, definitely. But I mean, overall, the greatest thing that's came from this is the, like I say, it, it's just the perspective, you know, just, I, I constantly feel like I'm, I'm ever growing. I'm ever evolving, you know, and it's, it's, it's awesome. It's really awesome. And then right alongside, you know, butt to butt with the greatest thing that came from all this being the perspective is the fact that the people that I've helped and the people that I've met and just the connections that I've made, it's just like they're replaceable. Well, another through line, and there's lots of through lines, as you can tell. I mean, after four years of, of talking to people, a lot of conversations like this, you know, there's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of lines that intersect. Yeah. But another one is 
that firefighter, that police officer, that schoolgirl, whoever it is that stood in the middle of that profession, that schoolyard, and thought they were the only one hurting, and then an event happens, a near suicide, you know, whatever it was, and then they come through the other side, and they have a voice, and all of a sudden, people come out the woodwork, and all these people that you thought were fine you realize weren't and the mask comes off and you're like oh shit i was i was so wrong about everyone else so what was your perspective from from through your eyes with that what was my perspective whenever i i mean did were you were you taken aback by how many people actually were hurting that they reached oh, out to oh, you abs- absolutely like when i tell you okay so obviously the first my first kind of audience was my readers for my blog. And those were digital people. Like I never actually made the face-to-face connection or actually spoke with those people in person or anything like that. All the conversations and the feedback that I got from the blog was via email. So I never got to see like the magnitude of how many people were actually out there. But whenever I got the opportunity to speak on the panel after the Suicide the Ripple Effect premiere, the amount of people in that room, first of all, was insane. Second of all, the amount of people that came up to me afterwards, just fully opening their heart and just their brain and just like spilling everything to me because they felt so connected to me because I was so vulnerable in front of them sharing my story. They felt that they could do the same. Um, it was just like insane, the amount of people. And, you know, that was just the beginning of it. And, you know, so having come this far now, being this deep into it, the amount of people that, I mean, it's, you know, you want to say it's everybody, but it's not everybody, but it is pretty much like everybody, you know, like it's, 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 it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people that are affected in some, some way, shape or form that you, you just don't know. You know. It's just like the most cheesy, most oldest quote ever. You just never know what someone's going through. It's just so true. Absolutely. What's well, You've mentioned uh, suicide, the ripple effect. So um, I had a similar thing. I saw Kevin's uh, film. I think it was on, you know, Goldcast or one, one of the same, you know, online platforms. Yeah. Um, and then as I explored his work I found about that I actually I think it was a friend actually that sent it to me originally so I captained a screening here in my town and again the stigma the the pushback you know I had to be pretty aggressive to get the number that we needed to show up you know um and when we had the screening because of that I'm like oh you know well we'll see how this goes and you know it the the whole theater was just silent. And then what I did is like, I allocated and I'm not, you know, me personally, a suicide survivor, but obviously my wife's, you know, story with her boyfriend, that was very powerful. And then, so I allocated like 30 minutes for people just to share their thoughts at the end. And just like you said, it was just an absolute, you know, the dam was open and people were of all walks of life were telling their story. Even when we got out the cinema, I was out for another you know, 30 or so minutes talking to people that stopped me on the way out. And all I did is, you know, Kevin, again, just like you have, just open the doors. Like you said, you know, the, the hands are reaching and it just put glasses, like those, those colorblind glasses that you see on, on the viral videos where someone's been colorblind their whole life and they put the, new, the glasses on, now they can see. 
I feel that's it. Now they can see the hands that are reaching out to them. And it was, yeah. it was so, so incredible. And so when I watched your film, My Ascension, which, you know, we'll talk about in a minute. I want to try and help, you know, give, give a platform to try and get the last remaining funds to finish it. I think it looks beautiful as it is now, but, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, to me that it, that is an, an equally powerful film, but obviously it's, it encompasses a younger audience. You know, Kevin is a, is an adult and a lot of the people yeah. in that story are older. You know, with yeah. you, we're talking about children and we talked about, um, Karen, you know, I mean, Karen's a powerful, powerful message within that. Someone that reached out to you, talked to you and still succumb to her terminal depression and ended up completing suicide. So I think that the film that you and Greg have made is so, so important. I had, uh, Mark Miro on, uh, early in my podcast. You know who that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another name sounds familiar. He's the the f- retired professional wrestler that now does the the anti bully suicide prevention yeah, talks. Yeah. Um, another beautiful thing. But I actually tried to get Mark at my son's school and was told they don't have the funds and it's not going to happen. Um, so, like I said, yeah. I brought suicide uh, ripple effect to our town. But I think that your film is an extremely important film that needs to be seen by all ages, but especially, especially by school age, you know, boys and girls. So, you know, what you've done, the journey that you've taken and, and the voice, the platform that you've gained by making that film with Greg is, I mean, it, it's incredible. And, it, and I know COVID must have thrown a spanner in the works, but we need to help you guys get that finished so it can get out because it's such an important story. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. I really do. I mean, if you would have told me that this would be the way my life would look, I would, like when I was a kid, you would told me that this would be the way my life would look. I would think you're crazy, but it definitely has been a, a long, a long, a long journey, but one that I'm super thankful for. And I'm very extremely humbled. And having worked with Greg, it was just like, we take so much pride or we have so much pride and our well not pride pride is not the right word um we're so proud of like what we've been able to accomplish you know we were able to get the hope squad in ledger high you know we we've done we've done so much but that's only the beginning of it and so i wish that there was no more funding to be done i wish that we could just give it away and share it for free to everyone out there because bottom line is it's the 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 core message of it is what is the 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 meat and potatoes you know like it is I, it's it's my dream for it to you know be shown at every school I, I mean I think it'd be really epic if we could even come up with some sort of like curriculum around it and you know get it implemented into schools you know but it's a shame that that schools, unfortunately, sometimes don't have funding to do a lot of these things because it is extremely necessary and needed. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Well, you talked about the Hope Squad before. I want to transition in a minute to some closing questions. I know we've been talking almost two hours now, um, but uh, that seems to be, you know, a, a success story, uh, an actionable thing that that people can work on in 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 the meantime and and trying to create an environment that that changes some of the the feeling of being alone the stigma so for everyone listening you know tell me about the hope squad and and 
how, if someone listening, can they try and start moving towards getting something similar in their school? All right. Well, Hope Squad is a peer-to-peer um, support group system that's implemented into schools. And basically the first step, if you want this implemented into your school, is you got to reach out to your school, your school board members. You got to reach out. You can even start with the teacher and see who you need to speak to next. You can start with the principal, a teacher, and just bring bring them the information. You know, you can pull up the hopesquad.com online and they have all I'm pretty sure it's hoopsquad.com. Let me check real quick. Um, but yeah, they have all the information on their website. Um, I'm not sure what the backdoor stuff looks like to get them in, to get Hope Squad implemented into your school. But I do know that one of the first steps is just talking to your to your school board members, people that work at the school that have some pool or power. Um, just really presenting the idea to them. It's really, um, it's really effective. Hope Squad is extremely effective and they, they've since grown since we've um, started working with them. They, I think when we started working with them, they only had Hope Squad in like a little over 200 schools. And now I think they have almost a thousand, the Hope Squad, I think there's almost a thousand Hope Squads are thousand Hope Squad in a thousand schools almost. So like they've grown pretty drastically and uh, they um, it's definitely a tangible thing that is for schools that actually does work and make a difference. Um, yeah. So it's hopesquad.com. You just go on there and they have all their stats and their information and everything like that. So it's, it's uh, not very complicated to, to get, that conversation started um and then two i know you mentioned that you want to help roll out the documentary and get the uh, funds finalized and things like that which is which would be you know amazing we would appreciate any help that you're willing to give um you know so if you want you know anyone that's listening you know we do have we do accept donations on the my ascension websites um myascension.us um, you can donate there or you can um, reach out and we are coordinating slowly but surely coordinating, trying to find the best way to do this, um, being with COVID and everything like that. But we are selling advanced screenings um, as well. So if you want to host a screening in your community, you can just go to myascension.us and look there for further information on that. But like I said, it's things are kind of crazy and up in the air as we all know we've experienced with COVID and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, it's um, just a matter of visiting the website and looking in to see what, you know, what you guys want to do and reaching out and yeah, but um, Hope Squad is really, really awesome. Like we got the chance to meet with them their, their founder, Greg Hudnall, in person when he came to Letcher. And it was uh, it was awesome. I really, really love what they do. I think what they do is really epic and should be in every single school across the whole nation. Now, you said peer-to-peer. Is it, that's a, a model that's worked very well in fire and police where in our professions, you know, the... <laughs> 
a lot of civilians don't understand what we do. So what really breaks the mold is when a firefighter or a police officer talks to another one because they get it. You know, and, yeah. and, and the same, same with counselors. You know, if there's a counselor doesn't understand what we do, it can be detrimental, not helpful. With the Hope Squad model, is that basically empowering, you know, your fellow um, students to be able to talk to each other? So, again, there isn't that stigma of talking to an adult if they feel more comfortable talking to a yeah. fellow student? Yep, it's exactly that. So basically, whenever a Hope Squad is implemented into a school, they'll uh, like have nominations. So the peers that are actually Hope Squad members are nominated by their peers. So they, they're they all people that are a part of the Hope Squad um, are all people that their peers, their fellow peers, nominated them to be a part of the Hope Squad because they feel like either they're, you know, they're kind person or they're easy to talk to, or they feel comfortable around them or, you know, things like that. That's the type of people that get nominated to be on the hope squad. And so the peer to peer, it really starts as be, as early as that from the nomination. That's whenever they start, you know, the peer to peer aspect. And then once, you know, they have the hope squad members, then anybody that wants any extra additional support or anything like that has that to their, you know, like easily accessible to them um, to be able to just go to the Hope Squad and just talk to one of them and get get help and get guidance or whatever they need, you know, just have someone to talk to to relate or whatever. But it definitely takes away the fear of speaking to an adult, you know, definitely takes away um, that kind of that barrier and that wall between adult and youth you know, um, and then on top of that, obviously they do have the hope squad, you know, it's the, it's the students that are hope squad members. Um, but they do have, obviously the counselors are closely intertwined, the teachers, everything, the adults are obviously very connected into it. Um, because, you know, obviously if something, if, you know, you're in a peer to peer meeting and, you know, your peer tells you something that could be harmful or, you know, threatens his life or something. And obviously you need to report that to an adult so they can further help. But so they do have that aspect as well, but it's mainly run peer to peer, you know, with the youth to youth, you know, kids that are going through things are talking to kids that are also going through the same things. So that helps because they get it. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And again, as we were saying, you know, if there's kids that have been through that, you know, or on the other side and, and able to help, then they get that feeling of well-being that we just talked about. And, you know, with, as what happens with mine, you know, we, we've, we've got the kind of peer model set up. Our issue now is trying to find the right counselors, you know, the ones that do understand police and fire, the ones that are in the, you know, insurance network, whatever. Well, it sounds to me like the way you've got the Hope Squad model you are talking to a you know let's say another girl or boy and then there is an issue well you already know you've been trained you've had the relationships with the right person to go to so there's no uh, tearing your hair out like who am i going to tell you know you you know exactly who to go to for step b of this process if it needs to yeah and that's what's so like it's so great about it it's just so easy it's so simple like it's a quick it's it's you don't want to say it's a quick fix but it's almost like the perfect tool like for us to like I just I I can't emphasize enough like how much hope squad just needs to be in every single school because it's it's so effective it is I think I think one of the counties 
pretty sure one of the counties that has a hope squad has had gone like five plus years out of suicide or something in their entire county. So, I mean, there's, there's some success stories that you can find uh, from like, as a result from hope squads being in certain communities for sure. Beautiful. Well, Emma, let me go to the closing question so I can let you go. Um, we've been talking you know, over two hours, which is beautiful. And, and that's what I love about these conversations is they're organic. You know, it, it takes yeah. as long as it takes. <laughs> um, so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you've read that you love to recommend to other people that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? Um. Okay. Well, I have a lot of books, but I don't read. So, but there is one book, there is one book, well, hold on, there's one book that I did read whenever I was like in middle school and what was it called? I'm going to be the worst at this question because I don't remember what the book's called, but it was so good. What was it about then? Don't worry about the title. Tell me, tell me how it, you know, related to you. It was about a little boy that died and went to heaven and then came back. He died for a couple hours and then came back and he had literally lived an experience that was like heavenly. Like he, he told his story and he was like a little four-year-old boy or something. I don't remember what it's called though. But it must have been amazing because it still resonates with you now. Yes, so. it does. And like that, I'll never forget like the way I felt after I read that book. But um, you really got me there. If you asked <laughs> me about a show or like. Well, that's going to be the next question. But here's what we'll do. If it, if it pops in your mind, I'm going to put this out on Sunday. So if it pops in between now and then, um, you know, send it to me and I'll pop it in the show notes. <laughs> But I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because you read that in middle school, and it was obviously a very powerful story for you personally too. So yeah. All right. Well um, then. What? No, actually, I take that back. I take that back. There was a book that I did read, um, and it's actually a uh, a story, a survivor story, another one, a suicide attempt survivor story. It's called Life in Spite of Me. It's Kristen Jane Anderson. So it's beautiful. Excellent. I haven't read that. I mean, there's there's lots of kind of related ones I've got on my bookshelf here. Um, Beauty of the Darker Soul is a good one. I'll throw one back at you. It's uh, a military guy that was shot by a sniper that survived and went through some pretty significant, you know, mental health issues and near suicide and all that stuff. The Beauty of a Darker Soul. Yeah. Now, I wrote a book and I'm going to send you a copy. After we're done, I'll get you to send me your your uh, address, and I'm going to make you read a book. <laughs> oh, I'm going to read it. Look, that's that's the great thing. This this book was given to me by Kristen. Oh, there you go. So I'm going to sign mine and send and it to so, you too. So I'm going to read it because I read books that people give to me. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, an easier question. Movie and or documentary. So obviously yours is um, My Ascension. We talked about Suicide, The Ripple Effect. So what about like feature films and then any other documentaries if you have them? That I would recommend? Yeah, or that you just love? Well, my favorite, favorite movie ever is Shawshank Redemption. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with that one. <laughs> love it. Listeners. Um, but that's my favorite, favorite movie ever. Um, docu-series there's so many good ones i think my favorite one though which is actually an unsolved 
case. It's uh, Making a Murderer. Making a Murderer. Pretty sure it's still on Netflix, but um, yeah, it's a crazy case of Stephen Avery, who was in prison, wrongfully charged for murder, imprisoned for so many years, got released, and then got convicted again wrongfully. It's a whole whole debacle you can watch it but it's really good yeah no i've seen it it's amazing so he gets oh, you seen it okay he gets um proven innocent the first time he's supposed to hit this big settlement and then miraculously mm-hmm. gets accused of murder and doesn't pay a settlement and goes to prison along with his uh, nephew i think yes yes yeah so yeah. sad well then i'm gonna give you a road trip in ohio if you're ever there the ohio reformatory is where they shot shawshank redemption and the actual new prison, the penitentiary there, that's where all the prisoners are. So now the the reformatory was abandoned for a long time, but they turned it into a museum. So you can actually go in and see, you know, what these real life prisoners went through, which is so sad. But also as a movie buff, you can see certain areas where they shot mm-hmm. the scenes from the film. So, Wow, that's so cool. I wish someone would have told me that when I was up there. I was, I was in northern, like, on the border, northern Kentucky, southern Ohio, uh, like a little while ago. Well, next time then. Yeah, I, I forget exactly where it is. I know my wife's from North Canton, which is outside Cleveland. So it's another hour from where she was. So I forget exactly which direction. But if you look that's it up, really you'll be able to see. Yeah, that's really cool. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and basically anyone on planet Earth with ears? Probably my boss. My boss, Brandon Foreman, because he has a podcast too. And it's actually a local podcast. It's called What's What BR. But he is um, very, very intellectual. Um, has has lived a lot of life, has, a lot, have had, has had a lot of experiences. So I think he'd be a good, a good conversation. Um, there is another person though. So this is actually kind of cool because her name is, you probably will butcher her last name. Her name is Tara or Dern. Okay. How did you, yeah. how you, you spell just it? Down, you just spell it right. You just write it <laughs> but um, yeah, so, but she was my, my rehab nurse. She was my nurse in rehab and she, her and I are still like, she's my aunt Tara. Like she will, like we built the best, greatest connection and bond like ever. And she is a kick-ass nurse and yeah, she's, she's a, she's an incredible soul. So she would be a really great person to talk to too. Um, there's a lot of people that I think would be awesome for your show. I mean, I've seen a lot. I've worked in dispatch. I've, I have police friends. I have firefighter friends. I have EMF, like medic friends. So beautiful. Well, it's a, it's an ongoing open communication. So if you ever think of someone, you just uh, you know drop me a line. All right. Well, then the last question before we go over where people can find the film and, you know, any way they can reach out to you online. What do you do to decompress these days? What do I do to decompress? Let me think about this because I'm going to give you an I would you know, I would just spit some. I would give you an answer, but it wouldn't be like the actual truth. <laughs> 
I'm trying to think of something that actually really like chills me out. Probably whenever I make my boyfriend run me a hot bath, but I don't get in the bath and I just put my feet in the bath. I sit fully clothed, but I put my feet in the bathtub. I've never heard that one mentioned, but I can actually relate because the number of people that sit like that in a hot tub on the outside talking to people, it's obviously right, a there thing. You go. And I, it's actually a new development because my mom told me about it. You put, you do that you put a coal rag on your neck and it should cure a headache because I suffer with migraines. Well, I started doing that for my headaches and I loved it. It worked. It's like a charm. Well, but then I just started to do it because I just like to do it. And now it's like kind of the go-to thing that I, if I'm starting to feel like extremely anxious or like overwhelmed or just need to like, just calm down. I'll just like, I'm not going to say I go run the water because I don't, I make my boyfriend do it. That's part of the whole experience though, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is. But I have to try that because I, I suffer from migraine sometimes and I've never tried a hot yeah, bath I, with a cold rag on my neck. So it works. We'll have to try it. It works. Brilliant. All right. Well then people listening, where can, just remind me again, where can they find my Ascension, the movie and the website so they can donate? Yes, absolutely. So the, all the information that you're going to need regarding the documentary is going to be on myascension.us. So just reference that website for everything. Um, you can play around on it, look at everything. There's videos on there, um, lots of different ways that you can get connected with us um, and support and donate and help and whatever you can do to get our message out there and help us um, widen our reach. We'd be happy to happy to work with you and help. Any help that you can give us is much appreciated for sure. Um, so yeah, just myascension.us, simple. Beautiful. And again, I will underline, I think, I kind of know if I said this before we start recording or not. I love documentaries. Therefore, I'm a huge documentary snob. And I can't state clearly enough how this film needs to be seen. So anyone out there, if it's $10, if it's, you know, if you're able to do more, let's get this thing put out there. I, I think it has to be. I think it will literally save lives. And while people are arguing over all the things that we've seen the last 12 months, you know, dig into your pocket and do something actionable that's going to save a life. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That, that. that means a lot to me, especially that feedback about, you know, it being a very well put together documentary because we put all of our heart into this and it is, it couldn't have, it couldn't have turned out greater. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, you know, it shows, it really does. So last question before we kind of wrap up, if people want to reach out to you, where can they follow you or connect online? Okay. So I am on all platforms. I don't really use Twitter, so we're not going to get Twitter. Um, but you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Facebook is just my name, Emma Benoit. My last name is a Southern one, so be ready for it. It's B-E-N-O-I-T. Oh, you spell that, but you don't spell Tara's one for me? Yeah, no. <laughs> no. You can figure that one out yourself. Um, so, yeah, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. My Facebook is just my name, and then my Instagram is the same thing, but my last name and then my first name. So it's my Instagram is uh, Benoit Emma. Yep. So very simple. You can find me on there and I try to be pretty good about responding to DMs. I, I like to, I, I take a little bit of pride in that. Like I, I respond to my DMs. So 
you DM me, you probably will get a response. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you. And this is something that I, I try and say at the end of each of these conversations with people that, that have a story like this, because it's a double-edged sword. I, I know firsthand the same way that you know with your story that when it's put out there, it makes a difference. It does. It resonates with people. And I get messages and I get a fraction. I get the tip of the iceberg compared to the person who's actually speaking. But I also understand that by asking someone to come on here, I'm asking them to relive some of the darker times too. And there's there's a cost to that. So I just want you to know that I appreciate you being so courageous, being so vulnerable, and being so generous with your story to, you know, to try and make the world better. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate you reaching out to me. And I really, really admire what you do with your podcast. I um I went on your website, your podcast website, and I read everything and I think it's awesome. I think your story, your story as well, is very telling and it needs to be heard because it's powerful. There's power in all of our stories. So right back at you. And I, the, it's my pleasure. The pleasure is all mine to be on your show. I mean, it's an honor. <laughs> <laughs>